0: Two, three,
1: four. Manuela Nucadazio is the newly appointed executive director of the Pritzker Architecture Prize. She is the former executive director of the Venice Biennale in the Department of Visual Arts and Architecture, where she managed exhibitions with distinguished curators, architects, artists and critics to realize the International Art Exhibition and the International Architecture Exhibition since 2009. Preceding that, she was responsible for the technical organization and production of both exhibitions, beginning in 1999. She holds a PhD in the history of architecture from the University of Roma Chieti, Italy, and lives in Paris, France. Manuela Luca Dazio, welcome to The
2: Creative Process. Thank you for inviting me.
1: So architecture has been, I think it's your first love, of course, you have this long journey to becoming the director of the Pritzker Architecture Prize. You have just announced the new laureate of the prize. What today do you feel is the role of the architect in society? And along that, the mission and the vision of the Architecture Prize?
2: Well, I see the architect as mainly as a translator, if you want, as an interpreter, an interpreter of our society, with their needs and, and demands, and also an interpreter of the physical world we live in, with its delicate balances, rules and complexity. So I think that to address social and environmental inequalities and to provide the best possible quality of life to everyone should be the main task of an architect. On the other hand, I think also that I see the architect a little bit also as an artist, because to be able to reach such a task, you have to be also able to push the boundaries and the limits of the profession in a very creative and sometimes radical way. And about the prize, the mission of the prize is has always been very clear since its very beginning. First of all, we might question what is the importance of any architecture prize or any prize in general. So. From my point of view, a price is not just to establish the most beautiful building or the most expensive building or the tallest building in the world. It's rather to foster the discussion to bring forward critical points to be discussed, to bring forward contradictions, to really to enhance the discussion about what is relevant for our society or for the society in a specific moment. So this, for me, is the role of a prize, to highlight critical issues and to foster the discussion, to face them and to find solutions, to find new paths. So in the case of the Pritzker Prize, the mission has been very clear since the very beginning. So it's to acknowledge a living architect or architects, for a body of built work that has produced a consistent and significant contribution to humanity and to the built environment through the art of architecture. So this has stayed the same. Of course, this mission has been interpreted in different ways from the different juries that have succeeded since 1979. But I would say that the terms of this equation have always stayed the same. Clearly, each laureate from each edition has represented these values in a different way, of course, according to the motivations that each jury gave to the specific choice. But it has stayed basically the same throughout the years. And I would say that this mission has really two main points that I would like to highlight. One is the benefits to humanity and the built environment, and the other is art of architecture. So these two terms have always been together, never excluding each other, no matter what the choice has been in the past. To come to the role of the Pritzker Prize in more recent days, I would say that the relationship between these two terms has shifted a little bit, has changed according to our times. So we are living in a world that is extremely more complex and complicated. So our lives have been halted regardless of any geography as a result of growing inequalities, political, social, economical, and so on. So we live now a moment of deep shift, if you want. And I think that decolonization, decarbonization, social and environmental injustice, gender equity, these are all terms that belong to our daily vocabulary now. So we have to face and address these issues from both a personal and professional point of view, whatever our profession is. So I think the Pritzker Prize has the power to foster, to enhance the discussion on the one end, and on the other end, it has also the power to involve a more global audience in this discussion. So it's not just limited to architects, because ultimately architecture is what we live in and we use every day of our lives. So all of us, each of us should be involved in this discussion. It's a really a common responsibility, where the architect, again, from my point of view, is the translator and the interpreter and the catalyst of all this.
1: Indeed, and I always think about architecture as an art, but unique among the arts. As you say, it's what we live in. There's not one day, one moment when we're not touched by architecture. And so that's very interesting as it is both an art that is in the foreground and the background and I think that David Chipperfield also highlighted that in his talks about the subject and also itself becomes a, a site for other artwork, the beautiful museums that have been designed by some of your laureates. So it takes on the meaning of whatever we put into that. So it's a very unusual art that it is constantly evolving by its own qualities but also by the meanings of the projects, the encounters that it engenders.
2: Absolutely. it is. You know, you can decide in your life to live without art or to live without music or theater. You can decide to never go to see a film, but you can't live without architecture. It's inevitable. use it, you use architecture and you live also architecture in a personal dimension, in a more isolated dimension, but also in a common dimension. Your working place, the places that you use even to go shopping, these are all transportations. Everything relates to architecture in a way. So architecture is basically the art that has to dialogue with all the other arts and not only with the world we have around
1: indeed everything is design i mean even our dna is actually beautiful design absolutely yeah we have design and sometimes we don't think about the hmm. design and dance company the director told me and i hadn't thought about it and he had said that most of the world's problems are problems of design so one thinks about design as being superfluous but in fact it is essential and the beauty and the efficiency of that design go hand in hand and when it is out of balance when it we lose that aesthetics we also lose the functionality
2: absolutely in a way i think this is maybe why architects can be really interpreters of our world because design involves first of all an analysis an evaluation you have to have the starting points why you want to design something be it a building or a table or a dress. I mean, there is always a demand and a need behind it. So you, this is your starting point and this is where, what you have to analyze to be able to understand how you can contribute and what is your added value. So it's at the same time, I would say a rational process and a creative process. And of course, depending on the author, these two dimensions can produce different uh, results.
1: Yes, and I imagine those conversations that you have in the jury, so you're deciding what's important. And I've never been present at those discussions behind the scenes. When buildings are being designed, there is mm-hmm. the client, there's the budget, the business or the public building and what its purposes are. And all of that is part of a creative process as well, I guess, as the architect, as, as leader, as visionary, mm-hmm. but also the engineers and all these many hands that make that possible,
2: of course. Architecture, this is also the other big difference between architecture and art, is a collective process, inevitably. And it's a result of the effort of very many minds and capacities and abilities. So this is a dimension that for me is absolutely important. But in a way, even in the case of an artist and artists work with assistants, they have studios, it's a whole machine that has to work in a certain way. And this you have it at very different scales. Now I bring my Biennale experience, so to prepare a Biennale exhibition is really like a very complex, fascinating machine with many different actors coming, there are like permanent actors, meaning the structure, and then there are guest actors coming every year, architects, artists, to bring their contributions, to bring the contents. And this has to become an even bigger machine that has to function in a certain way to produce the best result. So going back to my Biennale times, I must say when I started and I had to decide what to do in life because I was working with museums and exhibition design and restoration of buildings. And then at some point I had the chance to arrive at the Venice Biennale and the whole perspective changed. And it changed because I was working with living artists and architects. Until that moment, I was working uh, around, you know, all masters, works, museums, something that was there with the, can I say, with the aura of the history. And all of a sudden, I was dealing with living architects and artists. And this was, for me, the most incredible experience. So I decided to leave all the rest because I was doing quite a lot at the same time and to concentrate with the Biennale. And the very first lesson I learned is that we are there for the artists, and when I say artists, I mean also architects, of course. There would be no Biennale and probably no institution or museum without the artists. And to be able to deal with the artists, architects, curators, let's say the creative part of the process, you have to develop empathy and mutual respect and trust. But also you have to be very flexible and very decisive and firm when necessary. So. It's quite easy to say, but it's not so easy to put it into practice, I must say. Yes.
1: I can imagine, of course, it is set in Venice, and of course, it's many sites. It's just not one. There's the arsenal. I don't even know the whole footprint of that. So to be a great listener, a facilitator... And in a way, you're erecting, even though the buildings are there, some of them are quite large visiting constructions. Yes. <laughs> so you're erecting temporary buildings, these whole yep. settings, and to deal with all that. And it also reminds us of all art, but I think architecture is also a dialogue with space, and the country or city that it's in It's a dialogue with history, what was formerly there and what engages with mm. it. You don't build in Paris, which has so much history. You can't just transplant the building From the newer cities in America, for instance, it doesn't work. It has to be organic, become part of the society.
2: Absolutely. And in places like Venice, Paris, any historical city, you have this dimension when you work in a project like the Biennale where you have to build, as you said. It's a sort of a building into a building. You have the container, which is, of course, listed, protected, has to be respected, and it's untouchable. But then inside, you have to develop a whole new design and a whole new setup of works in the way that the curator and the artist want. So to be able to meet the regulations, to respect and to preserve the existing and to build something completely new, and in many cases quite extreme, this is always the... um, the most delicate point, and this is where the whole team around me had to be creative and decisive firm at the same time.
1: You highlighted Mm -hmm. as well, thinking to Venice with the rising water, the aqua altar, Mm -hmm. they have the environmental challenges of preserving Mm -hmm. the future, because there's such complex Mm -hmm. engineering Mm -hmm. just to maintain. And you also highlighted that an element of the Architectural Prize is one of sustainability. We have to think mm-hmm. about this. In the past, we build anything, the concrete yeah. and everything that goes into it. it. almost makes me think, I know you combine these two, the how it works within society in building the cities of the future. But maybe it could be two architectural prizes, like one <laughs> for the... Pure creativity and then one that maybe keeps a low footprints and, how you say, sustainable material. It's almost, that would be interesting, yes?
2: Yes, definitely. But I think it would be even more interesting to combine these two dimensions into the same price, which is exactly the message of the most recent choices of the price. So, in a way, so that we should rethink what sustainability is. And I come to the actual choice of David Chipperfield, who, because if you think of David Chipperfield, this is precisely what you were just saying. In his work, he can combine the art of architecture and the benefits to humanity and built environment. So he has his own way of being sustainable, which means eliminating each time the superfluous and just leave what will stay, what is durable. So I now refer to the jury citations or to the motivations behind his choice. So he has this incredible capacity to choose from the toolbox the tools that are pertinent to a specific project and never related to the promotion of the architect as an artist, to the point that he can even decide to disappear, as he does, in, for instance, in the restoration or transformation of things, sometimes from masters of the past. So he can make his own presence completely invisible. And this is what makes him really sustainable. This is, I think, is the pertinence of the work and the capacity to choose the right tools. This, I think, is a lesson for every single architect from all over the world. It's a method of working.
1: Yes. I think also that it can be a mark of genius. They say that the master never shows his hand in the work. You know, maybe there's a signature, Mm -hmm. but then it truly becomes collective and we are part of it. And that's the genius, then it taps into our imaginations, that we complete the vision.
2: Exactly. And this is also the ability to respond to, to the site-specific conditions, to respond to the specific requests of the projects and the context that is around the project. So. He has this ability to always respond to the site. And you
1: mentioned that recent laureates have a stronger eye on sustainability. Like all of us, we've had to focus because if we don't adapt, you know, the world climate will make us adapt. So tell us a little bit about some of those recent laureates. Looking back over the history of the laureates, tells the
2: story of Pritzker. Well, it's a long story, <laughs> but I find it very interesting what you said about beauty and sustainability. So for me, these go strictly together. And not only in the profession, we should all learn to be sustainable in our daily life and find the beauty in what proves to be sustainable. And sometimes we really need to start shifting our way of looking at things, because sometimes sustainability, which is a priority right now, doesn't really coincide with, let's say, the cheapest solution of the best economical solution. But now we have to decide the priorities. So the priority is now sustainability. We have to start to think about that. And if I think back, I say, to the most recent winners of the prize, I can see a lot of really groundbreaking innovative practices being brought to the forefront, like starting from Francis Queret and in this incredible capacity to build in places and times of extreme scarcity, or Lacaton and Vassal and their politically committed, very democratic vision, or also the deep humanism of Farron McNamara. Or the radical progressive approach of Alejandra Ravena. So these are all practices that were probably not considered until a few years or a few decades ago. Or even if you look at masters like Doshi or Isozaki and the contribution that they have brought to the profession from places that were far away from our global north. So, in this sense, I think that, and I think it was one of your points why their buildings are so iconic. I think they're iconic because they managed to speak to the users, bring it together this dimension of present and future. But even more than that, I find them inspiring because they communicate to the users that the commitment of the architect should be the same commitment of the user.
1: Yes, the same voice. It's so yeah. interesting. And then when you look back, you don't always know it at the time with a great architectural art, but when you look back, you say, Oh, that was really a building of its time. It said so much about the time that we lived through.
2: Absolutely. And when a building can embody these values, I think it will speak forever to whoever will visit it. We are still fascinated by the Pantheon in Rome or, you know, by the Acropolis in Athens.
1: And yes, as you say, it's so visible, it's so constant, and yet it has that invisibility, I guess, in the hands Mm. of masters that really will absorb it into our way of life. And we want to discuss, you know, buildings don't stand on their own. We're thinking about buildings of the future, cities of the future, and as we Think about sustainability and our climate and how we adapt to that. It's a whole ecosystem, in effect, the transport or resource management. So how do you envisage the role of architecture and the changes and the rapid transformations that need to take place for us to survive on the planet? Sorry, small question. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Exactly. Well, (laughs) this is easy to answer in a few sentences. (laughs) We should have like a few days' interview. (laughs) Well, all these topics, you know, transportation and green and food and sustainability and reuse of materials and CO2 consumptions and so on. These are all topics that, of course, pertain to architecture, but not only. So there are social, political, even philosophical aspects that really pertain to each of us. So from my point of view, the city of the future can only be built through the commitment the responsibility and the demand of the citizens of the future. And again, the architect in this whole process has for me the role of a catalyst, of an interpreter, a translator, let's say. But the architect has immense and invaluable privilege to build, to create the built environment. But on the other hand, the architect needs a client. And here comes my other main point. So we need, from my point of view, to create the city of the future and I see the city of the future as our common ground, we need to invest a lot on education. Education of the future practitioners, but also education of the future clients. And by client, I don't mean only governments or messenates or investors, I mean each one of us. We should become responsible for our demand to architects and to whoever is involved in the building process.
1: Yes, I think so. And something that now I'm hearing a lot about is adaptive intelligence. We have to, in a way, redesign our education systems or adapt them. Our challenges of the past are not the challenges we'll have in the future. And I really feel, like what you said, that the beauty and sustainability can be aligned. I wonder sometimes when we're thinking about buildings of the future, because there are these old buildings that aren't as sustainable, and how do you preserve that while adapting them? I mean, this seems like mm. a big challenge, preserving our history and culture, but also going forward
2: so that they have
1: not just the transformation of the energy and the materials and all these things that are just more healthy for the planet.
2: This is a long process. Of course, we can't see the results immediately. But I think I see more and more this diversity is coming into the discussion, especially in the field of architecture. And I see more and more the importance of looking elsewhere. So, in a way, you can think of an architect like David Chipperfield, who in his interventions, we can mention the Neue National Gallery, in Berlin, but also the Neuss Museum, many other interventions, is able to bring contemporary life in all structures. And this is a demand that is growing for the present and for the future, of course. But you can also then see someone like Francis Kere, who uses local materials, local techniques, a local language to design buildings that can definitely teach architects from the other opposite side of the world how to deal with the building process in a sustainable way. So more and more, I think that the dialogue between these diverse languages can only enrich the profession. So, you know, when I mentioned the toolbox and choosing the tools for each project, I mean that the toolbox should be as inclusive as possible. The discussion shouldn't be focused on this or that way of building or this or that philosophy related or referring to a specific geographical area or culture. I think it should be really a common toolbox from where every single architect can learn and take and understand how to use what is more convenient for a specific project. So this for me should be the goal.
1: Yes, and I was just doing an interview with an underwater photographer documentary and who's mapped the coral reefs, mapped our oceans just like they do Google maps but down there and I hadn't realized the extent that the coral reefs mm-hmm. they are alive, these huge organisms, mm-hmm. they're in fact underground cities. You know, they provide they are alive. Imagine, like, buildings that are alive, and they're huge, you can see them from outer space. And there are these really beautiful underworld ecosystems teeming with life and supporting 25% of all the ocean's marine species. And so much of our life originates from them. So, of course, I'm, like all of us, very sad that we are losing our coral reefs, so we have mm-hmm. to do as much as we can to fight it. But imagine if our buildings could be alive in that way, like a source of energy, too, mm-hmm. and a home, and just to be even more so an ecosystem that sustains itself
2: it should be like that. And I'm quite positive, I must say, I think it it will be like that one day. It has to go through, really, the responsibility of the architect in its profession, meaning architects should be improving, should be able to take radical decisions, should be able to challenge the clients, you know, to push forward all these aspects. When they make their responsibility, the designers, I mean, people who make the law, the rules, because this is also a political responsibility. It should become more and more part of any local, but also national government's agenda to, to promote and to give the architects the right tools also to progress in his profession towards sustainability. And on the other hand, it should be also our meaning, users' request. It's a collective responsibility. So I think ultimately the collective responsibility is the result of all the individual responsibilities. So none of us is excluded from this process. And this is why I see so much that education is the main tool to get there, because we have to educate ourselves, first of all, and prepare the future generations.
1: And the extent to which it's not just beauty, but bringing people together in spaces that are inspiring, because it can be a radical thing. It could create societies that are more equal in terms of the public spaces. And right now that's been unequally distributed, some of the access to the green spaces, but all these things that the psychologists tell us changes our thinking about the world when we feel limited. It's not often said. You know, architecture has a spiritual element. We know from the churches, if you go to the beautiful museums, which are the churches of today, or the other spaces, there is a sense, there is the light that enters one. And when something is beautifully designed, you're entering a work of art. Tell me about that, the magic <laughs> for you, the magic of art.
2: Well, this belongs to the artistic dimension of the architect, as I said, so the architect is definitely an artist. And this is exactly like when you are in front of a beautiful work of art or you are into a beautiful building. And by beautiful, I mean something that can move you, that really touches you physically, mentally and spiritually. And this is a combination of many, many factors that are difficult to to quantify in a way. This is the genius of the artist and the genius of the architect. In the case of architecture, I think there is an additional component, which is when a building allows people to be together in the same space and share an experience.
1: And we just don't even know the way it acts upon us. You mentioned that at your time, the Venice Biennale, Of course, it's a progression. You grew up in Naples. I want to hear about your childhood and
2: how that
1: influenced your imagination. You were working before with museums, more classical. Just tell us a little bit about that journey.
2: Well, Naples is quite an outstanding city, I must say. So it is a city in the south of Italy, but it's also a city in the Mediterranean. And this has really influenced a lot the history of the city physically, from the point of view of architecture, but also from the cultural point of view, if you want. So all the different dominations that have succeeded in, in Naples and uh, in the former kingdom, the, the, the city they have added to the cultural life from all points of view. From the points of view of the language you see in the dialect, from the points of view even of the food, of the music, of the mentality, of the philosophy, of the religion, everything. So for me, Naples is, is like a sponge city. And being born in a place like that have me a lot to absorb to be constantly you know open and curious towards other culture because simply because they were part of my own culture so It's a challenging city i must say and i think maybe this dimension i think passed into my dna because i always look for challenges and i always look for interesting complex when not complicated situations i think from challenges can come out the best results and the best opportunities. so i was born in naples and i grew up there and i studied architecture there and i must say that the study of architecture has made me see the reality where i was living different, even wider way. So if you walk in Naples, you will find so many places that are common places, places where people gather in a very spontaneous, improvised, sometimes even illegal way. All these little markets and bars and shops and squares. So every single corner can become a public space. And this, I think, is the best lesson that I instinctively learn without even knowing and it's incredible how more easily you communicate with other people when you are in a place that you feel it's a public color space. it belongs to you, it belongs to everyone. It's a space for the community. So this was the first lesson that I learned studying architecture, because then you start to read the places in a more, let's say, organized scientific way. And you can combine these two dimensions. And additionally, in a way, Naples is a theater, mm-hmm. like Venice. You have the same kind of dimension there. And the other very interesting discovery for me, when I studied architecture, was that I realized that you know, I had a main interest in, in literature, in poetry, philosophy, and I realized that architecture includes many, many other disciplines. And not only. When you study architecture, or when you work with architecture, you have to be constantly updated. You have to research, you have to read, you have to be informed, you have to be curious about all what happens in, around you, not just about architecture. So for me, without even knowing this, I realized that it was the perfect choice for my studies.
1: Yes, and I like what you emphasize, and it's something I feel is a little bit under threat. But now we can say there's been a transformation of our cities with the convenience of digital technologies mm-hmm. and the online shopping and all these things. Right. We still have it. When you look at Paris, we still have these public markets and things. But, you know, the lure of what's easy is going to digital spaces that we can neglect, that you can look on the streets, shops that were open and thriving and our closed. So we have to have initiatives to bring that life. We cannot lose what's always been so beautiful about our cities is to bring that life back into the streets. It's not just about the commerce of buying. There is something in this personal exchange and young people are growing up in a sense, some of them with the pandemic also, not knowing how to read people.
0: Like the
1: physical space teaches you this
2: absolutely, it's
1: more than what you can put in words, right?
2: Absolutely, I think one of the results of the pandemic has been, of course, a lot of online virtual relationships with other people, with our friends, with our families when they were far away, shopping, with whatever, but also. I think now, if we think of sustainability, if we think of limiting our movements, traveling of course, but in a sort of more sustainable way, I think that the relationship between global and local is sort of starting to be rebalanced, hopefully. So at least we are starting to look at these two terms in a different way.
1: Yes. It's a hidden architecture that we don't always think about. The architecture of our online spaces Mm -hmm.
2: definitely is influencing us in many subtle ways some good and bad yes definitely as you said good and bad i think it's Probably still a bit too early to understand the benefits and the advantages and the disadvantages of all this. But there are surely both advantages and disadvantages. In a way, what I experienced during the pandemic, there were a lot of online exhibitions. And this was really like a, a brilliant initiative and a brilliant idea not to detach us from culture, museums, this idea of the institution. So it was an incredible experience to be isolated confined and nevertheless be able to see an exhibition online a virtual exhibition on the other hand nothing can really replace the human experience when you are in front of a painting or an artwork or even inside a building nothing can replace this can no matter how perfect the technology is or will be i think nothing can replace the physical experience and the same thing is with human relationship we can zoom all of our lives, but nothing, you see, you and I are here yeah, I before, <laughs> <laughs> the one. and it makes it different.
1: Yeah, no, there's something, we have that real hunger because we are social beings that mm. we forget sometimes. It's interesting, at that time, actually I had an interview with Chris Durkin mm. of the Grand Palais yeah. about the need to redesign the museums. We did that during the pandemic. Oh, yes. He is an adventurer. He went around speaking to clochards at the start
2: of the pandemic.
1: <laughs> he said, this is great, the city assignment, no one I can talk to, let's talk to the
2: clochard. <laughs> what to speak to the clochard? He didn't zoom with the clochard. No,
1: he, so, the yes. human
2: dimension, the dialogue in person always makes a difference I
1: And mean, And he spoke then and other museum directors have said to me, the need to redesign, to rethink the museum, you know, maybe have less international exhibition International mm-hmm. is wonderful, I can't say. But you know, to think about not having a big carbon footprint, so maybe more local artists. So these are important questions that was interesting. People have remarked that very few times have there been where we had one event that we all experienced collectively, mm-hmm. and we could put on pause too and just stop and think, we're moving forward all the time. We're moving forward so much, sure. and then it gave us the same time to reflect. In that way, it was interesting for those of us that didn't suffer.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think you are right about what we should maybe reduce. We should think better about what kind of events are really necessary. So international, for me, does not have a negative meaning. I think when the international dimension is an added value, it brings something to the exhibition, the event, whatever it is, that makes it unique. So you can only experience in that moment, in that international context, and then it's worth traveling, it's worth organizing it, it's worth investing and even foster some sort of mobility, intellectual, physical and so on. On the other end we should probably avoid all what is not really necessary, all what can be enjoyed and experienced without traveling, without moving, without maybe organizing an exhibition because there has been already another one, a similar one or, you know, all the experiences that are really not necessarily, this should be reduced or eliminated from lives. Again, it's a matter of thinking in a responsible way. If what I am doing has a real added value to whoever is organizing it and whoever is going to experience it, fine. But we should really evaluate that.
1: Yes. It was nice. It opened our eyes to make things more democratic and open, that people could take part even if they didn't have to travel. And that was a nice thing that we've retained. I really like that so much. And in terms of your own I don't know if your family is in the arts it's so important. Of teachers, yes.
2: <laughs> That's true. Well, both my parents are very big art lovers. Not so much into contemporary art, I must say. But my sister and I were always educated to look at art, to travel, to look at beauty, be it architecture, art museums. So I have this kind of education. Contemporary art was my personal discovery when I was quite young, I think. I was 12, or 13, and my father took me to the Capodimonte Museum. And I still remember it. I stayed completely fascinated in front of this incredible installation that later, later on, I found out was Yanis Kunendi. So that was my first experience, direct physical experience with a contemporary art. World. But since then I was always fascinated. So then at school, they teach a little bit of more, definitely modern, but a little bit of contemporary art. And then from there on, it was always my interest. And the Venice Biennale helped me to really have the best insight in that world.
1: Oh, yes. Have them all come, come to that. you. That is a great <laughs> idea. <laughs> it's just hard to go to all the places. Wow, so oh, this gave me this feeling. How can I be a part of it to transmit that mm. to others?
2: Exactly. So I would say that if I realize that if what I do can help artists and architects to deliver their message, to present their works, then I would say that I feel satisfied about my job.
1: I think it's interesting because there are many different types of people, but being a bridge, it means you can have so many other dialogues. You know, the single architect or single artist, maybe they hone their particular vision and then must stay on it for so many years. It takes so many years of a building or a painting, but it's interesting when you then become a bridge, then your curiosity is open to everything almost. And you can be a part of so much more. So it's a kind <laughs> of a choice you make. Know? <laughs> so you must have always been curious as a child. Young Manuel. Well. <laughs> what she is like and curious, always asking.
2: Yes, definitely. I think this is one of the keys of my whole experience. I've always been very curious. And to work in an institution like the Biennale for me has been just a gift. Imagine an institution that includes art, architecture, dance, music, theatre and cinema. So although I was not working for dance, music, theater, and cinema, but nevertheless, I was following it, I was sometimes part of it, sometimes even within the art and architecture Biennale, there were specific components or artists or architects who wanted to work with others coming from the theater world or the cinema. So there were, take the Biennale of Ranculas, for example, there was a whole section called Monditalia, and this was including, it was a sort of a scan of, Italy through the lenses of architecture, art, dance, music, theater, and cinema. So it was a big collaboration with all the other departments. So all this is like an incredible source of experiences of information, bridging all these fields. is unique.
1: It, I can imagine, and it's a, a way to never leave school. Really, absolutely, huh. this absolutely. Is so, this <laughs> no, this is, I don't want to leave is the leave school. <laughs> <laughs>
2: this is the beauty. We are always learning, mm-hmm. learning, learning. Yeah.
1: I've been to a few biennales and I like particularly the way the exhibitions engage, how each artist engages with their different pavilions. Actually, the architecture is part of the art because it has this real dialogue with the spaces and
2: intimacy as well that is more so than in the museum space. That's true. And it's also interesting to see, apart from the international exhibition, all these pavilions that you mentioned, because There, also, then you have the geopolitical dimension of art, (laughs) in a way. It's interesting to investigate the different reasons why they are there. Of course, it's a representation, it's a national representation, but in the choice of the artist and in the choice of the message they want to send each year, each country has its own vision and its own thoughts. So, it's interesting to see why all the countries are there so some of course are there because they've always been and it's a sort of a given presence in the world of art architecture some others they want to be there because they want to compete some others they want to demonstrate that they also have something to say out of sometimes outside the mainstream so all this makes it a really interesting experience both to organize it and to visit it i think
1: Yeah, I imagine the selection process, I don't know what the jury process is for each Biennale, but it may be kind of mirror the kind of complex selection process at the Pritzker. And you deal primarily then with everyone, the curators of it, the artists, it's mysterious for us.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, in both cases there are juries, both at the Biennale and then the Pritzker, of course, is a jury. In the case of the Biennale, the jury visits the whole exhibition every single work, installation, pavilion, and so Mm. on. And then they decide autonomously, even autonomously from the curator. So sometimes, as you can see that the choices of the jury are not necessarily, let's say, aligned with the curatorial view of the whole exhibition, it could happen. So this is a difference, and of course there are reflections that pertain, like for every jury, to the specific group. In the case of the crystal Prize, well, the jury's process is, the whole process is divided into two phases. So the first phase is like a preparation throughout a few months. And this is the moment where I receive both solicited and spontaneous submissions. So every single architect can nominate himself, herself, themselves, or other architects. And on the other end, I ask a number of persons around the world to send nominations. And this is to, of course, these are all persons with a background in architecture or persons who deal with architecture. I try to expand this network as much as I can, so not just architects or critics, but also museum directors, sometimes artists, whoever is, has a relevant relationship with architecture. So this creates like a first overview of how the world looks at the Pritzker Prize each year. And the jury examines every single nomination from this long list. And then the second phase, well, there is not so much to disclose about it because ultimately it is a very open, ongoing discussion and with a very precise task, of course, which is to choose the laureate but without specific rules. And here lays the chemistry, I would say, of the jury. So I can say that the starting point is a deep analysis of the status quo of the profession and of the values that it should transmit. Of course, at some point, at some stage, a name comes up, but always in relation to the tasks and the goals that are on the table. So I would say that the decision is, well, it's never about the absolute value of an architect's body of work in itself. It's rather about all the many specific values that all together make one name correspond to the task that's been uh, discussed
1: immense. And although we've seen a lot of advances in the art world, moving towards more gender equity, women being left out of the process and the recognition in architecture, it's still slow, at least for the internationally renowned architects. I don't know where we reach that. It might be something that, you know, maybe men are more inclined to become architects. Maybe you see that when they're young. How do we make that whole field more representative or include women more in the education process and maybe eventually reach gender equity or at least more proportionality? Well, I think
2: women have always played such an important role in history, in culture, in politics, even in revolutions without, sometimes without being aware. So I think we should just become more aware of our role, of our power, of our strength and our possibilities. I think it's up to us. So yeah. it, of course it's a long process, but there are so many women that have been opening doors and paths uh, for others to come. I think this should always be considered and never forgotten. And this is a process that has to continue. And I must say today I see a generation of younger architects and so many of them are women. It's, it's incredible. So I would say never give up. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: Hello, my name is Yang Han He. I am an art history master student at the Courtauld Institute of Art. I often ponder the meaning of education in art and culture and the best way to deliver them, especially in an intercultural context such as the one I have experienced in this podcast. When I just started learning art history, it was for an advanced placement exam I took in high school. At the time, art was presented in textbooks as photographs of objects defined by text indicating their titles, artists, patrons, creation times, locations, etc. Meanwhile, since I was living in China, it was difficult to visit most of the artwork located in other countries, not to mention getting in touch with many international art professionals. Therefore, my perception of Western art at the time was not too different from that of any historical event. I knew what happened, but what I had was mere knowledge of the fact, without any in-person experience. My education was broadened while I was living in the U.S. and now in the U.K., where there is easier access to impressive art collections that cover a variety of periods, cultures, and artistic movements. The internationalism in these countries also stimulates countless contemporary art exhibitions, activities, and discussions and participating in them has provided me with exciting opportunities to get in touch with active art professionals and of course also learn about their vision for the role of art in the local environment as well as in the international context Knowing the importance of actual experiences of art and learning directly from professionals and their timely works I deeply appreciate the existence of events such as the Venice Biennale and the Pritzker Architectural Prize which honors contemporary architects These celebrations of artistic creativity, the international prize, and a cultural discussion like this podcast provide a concentrated, dedicated time and space for art professionals from around the world to present, share, and communicate their works and thinking with each other. More importantly, they encourage engagement with the broader public sphere, providing an opportunity for the general public to get engaged with the most up-to-date, critical, and forward-looking cultural projects at a relatively low cost in time and travel effort. I am also moved by the collaborative effort and executive power of the teams that realize these projects for they not only work efficiently like an intricate machine, but also they hold a high standard for creativity, concern for humanity and the environment. I am also inspired by how Luca Fazio discusses the purpose of the Pritzker Architecture Prize because I used to think that prizes are set as an incentive for good work, but I didn't think much about what good work actually means, nor about why they need to be given the prize. But how Luca Fazio understands the prize is that it's absolutely more than recognition of the tallest building or the most expensive project, but it is to highlight the critical issues that are addressed by the laureate and to promote a wider discussion of the issue. Something that wins the Pritzker Prize will draw people's attention and encourage them to think, well, why has this architect won the prize? Why should we care about the project? And what are the issues here? And that is the meaning of the prize to Luca Fazio, and I'm really inspired by that. And now back to the interview.
1: <laughs> a great example of a powerful woman who was shown great leadership and ability to facilitate great international projects mm-hmm. yeah I want to see more of that because sometimes of people say to me as a woman painter they say oh it's a and sometimes I don't paint like a woman, <laughs> yeah. but you can look at an artwork and you can say, oh, that's more. You can tell a mother or a woman painted that. I don't know what a more you know female-dominated architectural world would be. You know, maybe they would be creating more spaces that accommodate the different aspects of life. I don't know. I like to imagine
2: a world with more women. <laughs>
1: Yes, <laughs> As you say, it's not always designing the buildings and then it's also designing the activities that take place in those buildings. As we know, historically, women have, have often been, as you say, soft power dominating and of what went on in the home.
2: That's historically okay. all this change now, but... Well, yeah. it changes, but this can become a hard power. Yes, you know. yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, a, it's not the soft. Yeah. soft. <laughs> well, you know how to manage your kitchen and your house. Yes. I think you know how to manage an office in a way.
1: Oh, it is. It's complex.
2: <laughs> it's different, but not so different. So I think women have this attitude, mm. even historically, without knowing, probably, mm. or sometimes knowing. But now, and this is why I think we should, women should be more and more aware of their possibilities yeah we're seeing more leaders
1: who are women and absolutely very encouraging for that and for you when you started out there's always been strong women but it's been rare then so who were some of your role models or early teachers that i can do this
2: (laughs) well there are so many in a way oh too many i would say luckily artists, uh, writers, poetresses. There there are a lot of women that influenced my life, starting from my mother, (laughs) you know. Mm -hmm. My mother is one of those women who managed the house, our lives, our (laughs) family, and she's still there with an incredible intelligence, curiosity. She reads that sometimes I have conversations with her about themes that relate to the Biennale, to art, to architecture. I'm always surprised, how can she know all this. And sometimes there are even things that maybe I knew quite confidentially in my job. And I said, how oh, did you get to know that? This is not public. I said, well, I read this on this newspaper and this on the other. And then I put the things together. It's quite clear. Right. So, you know, women have this power to analyze, to observe, and then to elaborate and I, act.
1: <laughs> yes, I think we're very cooperative as a species. But women are very cooperative. I mean, just by nature, it's yes. that kind of very nurturing, yes. it's just a natural thing that happens. Absolutely. It's so nice to see that. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't even always have to be yeah.
2: taught. Exactly. And ultimately, I couldn't imagine, I don't know, a building designed by a woman or a man or a non-binary person, I wouldn't be able to think about the difference.
1: Yeah.
2: It wouldn't make any difference, to be honest, if no, you told me in.
1: I mean, the whole thing is it's, it's open to all. And it was interesting. I was seeing the other day a documentary. It was from footage in the 1960s, in Naples, actually. Mm. And it was just so charming. Of course, so many things have changed, but this going back to that theater mm. of society, the natural, the instincts. Actually, there are as children, they were going to work very young. I mean, like, this yes. has changed. But it was very interesting because they were, you know, maybe they're considered teenagers now, but they were like at the bakery or whatever they're learning, making buildings. And it was interesting to see them as young adults. It reminded me about how our childhoods have changed mm-hmm. in many ways, like maturing oh, yes. fast, but in a way we've also... Infantilized children, infantilized, ch- infantilized children. children that they feel life was faster than Mm. in terms of you didn't know you would survive so long so you have to (laughs) think of an adult younger and so that was interesting Mm. and it made me think about the importance and this is coming back now and you have it in architects the importance of apprenticeship oh yes We have transformed a lot, gone towards university education, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't always give you those practical adaptive skills that we used to be getting through apprenticeships. So I'm wondering what you feel, you know, the importance of that, that you observed Mm -hmm. in the art and architectural world of getting your hands dirty and learning from the master or someone who Mm -hmm. can pass on their skills and trade.
2: That's true. I tell you, I I left university with a maximum yes, and then I had my PhD. And I was very proud of all this, of course. And then I started to work on a restoration site. I was working with an architect in Naples and she was in charge of the full restoration of the old charter house, which is actually a museum. And there I realized that I knew nothing. I mean, I didn't know anything about how to make the mortar or, you know, I didn't know anything practical. So I was learning from the workers. I knew a lot, of course, in the theory was there, but the practice not at all. So I spent quite a long time observing and listening to the workers who really own the manuality, the practical skills. So this is a super important experience. When you, know, you finish your studies and you are on the ground, maybe the two things should be a little bit more combined, but it's you discover a whole different world.
1: It's so true. And also I was speaking to a farmer yesterday from Argentina. <laughs> <laughs> so he was speaking about this in reforestation and that natural intelligence or the things that have been passed on from generation to generation mm. if you speak about sustainability this science is important but what the farmers or the indigenous people know about oh you plant whenever mm. the moon cycle because then they will last and these kind of things or if you look to nature what the birds know they won't feed on the dead soil they'll mm. feed on the rich living soil and you don't have to tell them it's organic it's just they know that they're Mm. drawn to it. So there is this deep cultural memory, I think. Mm. And that's what also buildings, architecture, is that sense of continuity that bridges the generations, that brings us in touch with the past as much as it brings us into the future.
2: And this is the fascinating point, I think. You know, history and tradition is super important but the transmission of all this knowledge and value is a chain. And this is the point because each generation is sort of translating to the next one. Yes. There is almost never a gap, a big gap. So and each generation while translating is in a way interpreting and hopefully also adding something to what is transmitted and continued. And so this is why I think the younger generations now they have tools that we didn't have at their age. So they are probably able to interpret, and now we go back to the whole discussion about the necessity for sustainability and attention to social, environmental injustice and so on. They have probably a vision or they, they have perspectives that we don't have. So in a way, in this transmission, we should be able to learn from them too. Oh yeah. Well, that's the great thing is
1: that we can record so much Sometimes it can be too much. That's the problem. Interpreting the data, <laughs> we are, just, we are drowning in data. <laughs> that at least that we can hold on to this. And I think that that's a very important point, as you say. Buildings or architecture is a translation. I think that all arts too. I've often felt it's like an art of translation, where there it might be an intimate feeling, you know, something that you remembered or felt that you must translate and bring it into words or music or buildings, whatever form. And then transmit that. And then the interpretation is the listener or the
2: viewer who adds to it their own imagination. Absolutely. And we go back to this idea of bridges. Mm -hmm. So in a way, the way you read a poem and in a poem, every single word has a precise, not only meaning, but a position in the sentence. The same is with spaces in architecture or with color, colors on a canvas and the sensitivity to interpret all that. Yeah is the same towards architecture, art, poetry, music, and so on and so forth. It's a construction, it's a composition that communicates to you, and you can interpret it in different ways, and they can all communicate between each other.
1: Yes. And so on this note, because I know education is very important to you. And so how do you transmit some of these things As you say you know, but in certain trades in architecture, a skill, a trade, an art, it has certain rules and certain things that you have to learn. We need to have these tools, these essential design tools that we might design a better future. And if we're not ourselves architects or designers, so how do you think we might evolve some of our educational systems to really impart this essential design thinking that's so important? Hmm.
2: Not an easy question <laughs> to answer. Well, I think we, are, we have become a, quite disconnected. We should become more connected to rethink how to, uh, to communicate and how to, to learn from the past, how to use this incredible heritage, cultural heritage that we have and how to make it alive and how to translate it into our own times. Again, I think there are tools that are now of course acknowledged and which is the traditional way of teaching, of learning, which is fundamental to our society. Probably, again, we should start to, to look around, to listen more and to imagine something complementary to that, to expand rather than Again, we don't want to reduce the tools, we want to expand the tools. So maybe to become a little bit more open and imaginative in creating bridges between different fields of knowledge, different methods of teaching and learning, different ways to transmit the knowledge.
1: Exactly as Siri Hafstead said to me sometimes this transdisciplinary approaches is very important because sometimes the problems that you encounter in your own discipline have been really solved absolutely. in another and then like oh wow i can add that to mine and now i can go forward but it will, you were blocked because you didn't see how absolutely you could. and you know i was watching uh, with renzo piano yeah uh, yesterday and i thought also oh, this goes to the point of apprenticeship because i guess he's Father was a builder, so he mm-hmm. grew up. You know, I think if we can really become acquainted with our art or what we plan to do in life early, then you have this intergenerational knowledge. Exactly. It passes into your uh, DNA. a yeah. basic absolutely thing from... you, they teach you. Like this, this is how it's done. And you know, We're...
2: architecture is a hybrid profession by definition. Mm-hmm. It has to deal with so many aspects that range from very practical physical, manual, or to aspects to financial, to philosophical, to artistic, to social, to political, and so on and so forth. So it's really like a hybrid profession. And now even more, it has to open up even more and include themes that are so relevant to architecture too, with what we spoke about, social, environmental justice, gender equity, decolonization, decarbonization, these are all aspects of our lives that have to go into architecture as well.
1: Yes, there so many things. And I think it mm. can be a basic human right. I mean, we can't all live in beautiful buildings, although I feel as I look at the homeless people and this is mm. something I would love to be able to solve in some way, there's a, it should be a basic human right. You know.
2: There should be a basic human right and there should be, yes, a basic right to decent conditions, to happiness, to beauty, not just to the minimal Yes. To the minimum. This should be definitely a human right, and for me, this is the task of the architect to provide the best possible quality of life to everyone.
1: Indeed. So, because everyone can add, if you just take the time to listen and observe, everyone has something to contribute. You know, it can, it, it's to go back to Chris Durkin talking to the no. clochards on the street. I should say yeah. that means homeless person. And, you know, they had these stories that they've been holding them, you know, everyone was once a child and Mm -hmm. to think, you know, we have to be able to preserve our innocence. For me, that is, I would say, one of the great challenges in life is Mm -hmm. to preserve your innocence even through maturity.
2: Uh, This is what Picasso used to say
1: all the time. I I believe he said something like that. It took him a lifetime to learn how to draw like a child. Like a child, exactly, exactly. (laughs) But you can because there is a great... Wisdom in childhood, but then with what you learn, you have to keep on going back to who you are, maybe. Of course. It was said at that, that early stage. Right. So finally, as you think about the future in mm-hmm. education, the challenges we face, the importance of the arts, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember?
2: Oh, well, this has a lot to do with this chain of transmission of history and knowledge. So all this is a very important heritage that we receive from our parents, and we transmit to our children and grandchildren to future generations. So I think we should be able to transmit them, to be a bit more critical about what we transmit and try not to teach in a sort of dogmatic way and let them free to interpret and understand and add to the history without the burden of stereotypes or predefined concepts, let's say. So they should definitely look at us, not necessarily learn or imitate us. But at least not 100%. So yeah, to use the incredible heritage that they receive, but with some degree of freedom and without borders.
1: Yeah, we have to do everything we can to give them that And you have, in your commitment to the architecture and art and beauty, you have certainly been a a wonderful bridge for understanding (laughs) and building curiosity. So thank you, Manuela Luca Fazio and the Pritzker Architecture Prize for creating lasting connections between people, culture, places and society. The architecture and art you foster creates hope and brings positive change, reminding us that cities are places of civic understanding and sharing values Thank you for adding your voice to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you.
2: It was a lovely conversation. It's beautiful.
1: The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews produced around this podcast were Sam Myers and Jan-Han He. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.